Good afternoon, everyone. After Jesus' death and resurrection, he appeared several times to his closest disciples, the ones he had chosen to become apostles, as well as to others. And on one of those occasions, as is recorded in John chapter 21, beginning with verse 15, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Exactly what did Christ mean when he told Peter to feed my sheep, to feed his sheep, the sheep of Jesus Christ, God's sheep? And did that assignment apply only to Peter? Or are there others charged with the responsibility of feeding God's sheep? How does this apply in the church? How are the sheep, as they are described in this analogy, to respond to what they are being fed? And how might this apply in a broader sense to others, not in the church of God? Do you, if you are a part of the church, share in the responsibility to feed God's sheep? And if so, how? The subject of this sermon today is feeding the sheep and I hope to give you the Bible's answers to the questions asked in the introduction. A number of places in the Bible we find the analogy of God's people being spoken of as sheep and God himself as a shepherd. In Psalm 100 verse 3 it says, Know that the Lord he is God it is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. In a prophecy in Genesis chapter 49 concerning the descendants of Joseph, Genesis 49 verse 24, it is speaking of the descendants of Joseph and it says, his bow, that is the bow of Joseph, his descendants, his household remained in strength. And the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. These words, there is the shepherd, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, that's a, a reference to Jesus Christ. Jesus said of himself in John 10 and verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. When God led the people of Israel out of Egypt, he fed them with manna, that is, he miraculously supplied them with bread from heaven, so to speak. And in Exodus 16, it tells about that. In verse 35, it says, The children of Israel ate manna 40 years until they came to an inhabited land they ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan so God fed the people of Israel miraculously as they were led through the wilderness for 40 years and part of the reason for feeding them in this way was to help them to understand that they were to live not by bread alone but by every word of God as we read in Deuteronomy chapter 8, beginning with verse 1, God said to them, Every commandment which I command you today you must be careful to observe, 
that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you and to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you and allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you to know that you shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Now, the people of Israel, as they were being led through the wilderness, were being fed. In part, with the manna, they didn't eat only manna, but that was evidently a main staple during the time that they were led through the wilderness, wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And this manna was something that was given miraculously every day. And except for the Sabbath day, they received twice the daily amount on the sixth day of the week and the remnant that was not eaten on the sixth day was reserved for the seventh day so they had food every day and yet they were not happy with what they were being given they complained about the food that they were being fed in numbers 11 and verse 4 it says now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving so that the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes, which was really a lie to begin with but that was their attitude and it says in verse 7 now the manna was like coriander seed and its color like the color of bdellium the people went about and gathered it ground it on millstones or beat it in the mortar cooked it in pans and made cakes of it and its taste was like the taste of pastry prepared with oil so it wasn't that they were going hungry and it wasn't even that they were, they were eating something that tasted awful or was not pleasant, but nevertheless they complained. They had plenty to eat, but they did not want the food that God offered to them. They wanted the food of their fancy, the food of their lusts and desires. And so it says in Psalm 78, beginning with verse 18, And they tested God in their heart by asking for the food of their fancy. Yes, they spoke against God. They said, Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rock so that the waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can he give bread also? Can he provide meat for his people? Therefore the Lord heard this and was furious. So a fire was kindled against Jacob and anger also came up against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. Yet he had commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven and had rained down manna on them to eat and had given them the bread of heaven. Men ate angels' food, and he sent them food to the full. He sent them food to the full, but they were not happy with what they were provided from God. Now, who is the one who ultimately feeds the church? Who is the one who feeds the church? We're told that Christ is the chief shepherd. And in Psalm 23 and verse 1, 
It says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And in verse 5, it says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Christ is the one primarily responsible for leading us to green pastures. He is the one who is preparing a table for us not only physically, but spiritually. And it is Jesus Christ to whom we look first and foremost to feed us, not just physically, but with the true bread from heaven. In John chapter 6, beginning with verse 47, Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. And not die. That is, even though one may die a physical death, he will not die forever. He will be granted eternal life in the kingdom of God. And we're told that Jesus Christ himself is the bread of life the true manna from heaven. And of course he was speaking metaphorically when he said speaking of eating of Christ in this sense is to partake of the word of God and of his spirit. As Jesus explained in John 6 and verse 63 he said it is the spirit who or which as it should be gives life the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit, and they are life. So in spiritual terms, the source of our nourishment is the Word of God. The Word of God is our spiritual nourishment. And in repeating what we already read in Deuteronomy 8, I believe it was, Jesus said, in Matthew 4 and verse 4, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That is our spiritual food, the word of God. And we are to live by it. Christ is our chief apostle and high priest. And we're told in, in Hebrews chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. The apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. The word apostle, which is an anglicization of the Greek word apostolos, means a herald or a messenger. A herald or a messenger. And Jesus Christ came with a message. God's word is a message to us. And we are warned not to harden our hearts against that message. But we must not only be open to receiving the message, we must actually seek out that message through diligent effort, through regular study of the Bible. And we have to take the initiative to do that to open our Bibles, to take the time to sit down and read and study the Bible every day. And then we must take the initiative and put forth the effort to apply what we read there, the message of the Bible, the message of the Scriptures. We must put forth the effort to apply that message in our lives in faithful obedience to what God's Word instructs us to do. In Hebrews 4 and verse 2, Paul wrote, he was writing to the church, and he said, Indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. Speaking, He was speaking here of the people of Israel when he said, As to them, in the people of Israel in ancient times. 
But he says the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard, that is the people of Israel, which we were reading about earlier, the people who complained about what they were being given to eat by God, the people who disregarded God's message in the wilderness, the word which they heard, Paul wrote, did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. He goes on to say in verse 6, Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, that is God's rest, His kingdom, is what he's talking about. It remains that some must enter it, the kingdom of God, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. They, they did not enter the land of promise, which was a type of the kingdom of God. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David today, after such a long time, as it has been said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts. So we must hear the word of God, and the word of God must be mixed with faith or belief. And we must be diligent to apply it. And we should be praying daily that God will guide us into a more perfect understanding of his word. Because none of us understand it perfectly. And there are things that, many things that we have yet to learn from the scriptures, no matter who we are, or, and no matter how long we might have been studying the scriptures, there's still plenty of things to learn and things that we need to keep being reminded of because we tend to forget if we don't continually remind ourselves through diligent Bible study. And we have to spend time and effort studying God's word if we are to understand it. In the model prayer, Jesus said, we are to pray, and this is in Matthew 6, verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. We're to pray, Christ said, and this doesn't mean that we necessarily repeat these same words exactly. This is a model prayer, an outline, if you will, of things that we ought, ought to be praying about, subject matter that we ought to be including in our prayers, but one of the things we ought to be praying about is God give us this day our daily bread. Now, he wasn't speaking here only of physical bread that's included, but it's not exclusively about physical bread or physical food. Even more so, we need to be praying for the spiritual bread from heaven which leads to eternal life. In other words, that God would give us understanding of his word and help us to live in such a manner that his word is living in us. But again, we have to be willing to put forth the effort to partake of it and willingly receive it. Just as we do our physical bread, we, we pray for God to provide our bread, but we don't just sit on our behinds with our dinner plate in front of us and expect God to throw food on the plate and then take a fork and stick it in our mouths. We have to put forth effort on our own to have food to eat as well as pray that God will provide for us. And that's the same way, by the same principle, we have to put forth effort to partake of the spiritual bread. We have to do our part. And God supplies our needs if we're praying and seeking God's word. Now we might ask, where does the ministry fit in this picture as far as feeding the flock is concerned? We've already seen that the chief shepherd of the sheep is Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ has appointed others to assist as shepherds of the flock. Just as he told Peter, feed my sheep. Peter wasn't taking the place of Jesus Christ. And some have claimed that they 
are in effect in the place of Christ. Peter never claimed that he was in the place of Jesus Christ because he wasn't ever. And neither is any other man. Any, any such claims are false. No man takes the place of Jesus Christ. No man has the authority of Jesus Christ regardless of claims to the contrary. But Christ has appointed ministers, faithful ministers, to assist as shepherds of the flock. And we've already read the scripture where Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep. And in the same passage we read, where Jesus Christ told Peter to not only to feed my lambs and my sheep, the lambs being newer, younger members of the flock, the sheep being older members of the flock, but he also told Peter to tend my sheep. And as Clark's commentary points out in this passage of Scripture in John chapter 21, he says, Our Lord uses the verb boscado to feed, and in John 21, 16, he uses the word poimino, which signifies to feed a flock. Not only to feed, but to take care of, guide, govern, and defend. To intimate that it is not sufficient merely to offer the bread of life to the congregation of the Lord, but he must take care that the sheep be properly collected, attended to, regulated, guided, and so forth. So this is the responsibility of the ministry that Jesus Christ has appointed to guide his flock, to feed his flock, to oversee the flock. And that responsibility applies not just to Peter, but to everyone who is appointed to the ministry of Jesus Christ. Every minister bears those same responsibilities in a general way. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 5, Beginning with verse 1, he said to, el to, uh, to the elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Now he's writing to the elders of the church here and he says, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, that's what a shepherd does with a flock. He has oversight, taking care of the flock, seeing that they're properly fed and so forth. He said, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you. The ministers are not to act as dictators, and tyrants and lords over the flock but as being examples to the flock and when the chief shepherd appears that's Jesus Christ you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away now the term elder used in this context is not speaking merely of an older person necessarily as some falsely imagine some have propose that where the term elder is used in the Bible it just means an older person it's, it can mean that depending on the context but that's not how it's usually used in the New Testament that is a false idea it is speaking of one generally and certainly in this context who is ordained to an office in the ministry this is a title for ministers one of the titles used in the Bible in the New Testament and elsewhere as ministers. Ed is speaking here of one who has been given the responsibilities we read in the context very plainly of exercising, exercising oversight over a portion of the flock of God. He said, shepherd the flock of God which is among you. In other words, ministers don't necessarily are not living among the entire flock. Peter was not shepherding 
most of the time the entire church of God, neither was Paul, neither was John. Although there were times when perhaps Peter and John were certainly very prominent in the church and were to, to one, one degree or another perhaps in overall charge of the church administratively, at least for a time. But they, were, uh, they had their responsibilities as every elder or minister does and that's what the term means. Someone who's been given the responsibility of exercising oversight over a portion of the flock of God, so to speak. The flock being a term here for God's people, the church, or in a larger sense, for the people of Israel or for anyone who has been created by God, God's people, the people that God made in His image. True ministers, true ministers are appointed under Christ to shepherd the flock according to the instructions that he has given to those ministers. Not just any, any way that they choose to do so, but there are very specific instructions in the Bible in a number of places about how ministers are to conduct themselves and how they are to shepherd the flock of God. And one of the primary responsibilities, as we just read, in 1 Peter chapter 5 is that the ministry is to set an example of how to apply God's word in our lives. And it is a required qualification for ordination into the ministry that one be setting a suitable example of how he lives his life. Ministers who live in degenerate profligacy and lawless licentiousness have disqualified themselves from being ministers, no matter what they call themselves. And they will suffer the penalty of blas for blaspheming God's word, claiming to be ministers and living in such a manner. First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2, it says, A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, Notice that they are to be temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, that is, not drunkards, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice. Lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now we are warned in Scripture in a number of places that false ministers would arise and victimize some of the sheep. In one instance, we're told that Paul called for the elders in a particular area where, where he happened to be in Asia Minor at the time. And it says, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus, is Acts 20 and verse 17. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. Again, the elders here were ministers, not just older people, but they were ministers given the title of elder in this passage. And he said to them in verse 28 of Acts 20, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. Notice how the church is again referred to as a flock. Among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. See, they were overseers of the flock or shepherds. To shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. See, the elders were the shepherds, the overseers of the flock. They weren't just older people in the congregation. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. 
Also from among yourselves men will rise up speaking perverse things. Notice that from the elders themselves ordained as ministers in the church there would be men rising up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. So there would be ministers teaching falsehoods and misleading people, leading them astray. How are we to know who is a true minister? How can you know who is a true minister? In John 4, 1 John 4, I should say, 1 John 4, beginning with verse 1, John wrote, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. You don't just believe somebody is a minister of Christ just because he claims to be a minister of Christ. That is a recipe for a disaster. It says, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets, not a few, but many, have gone out into the, to this, uh, into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus Christ has come into the flesh is not of God. And this is the Spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming, is now already in the world. Actually, this is rather poor translation. But where it says we're to test the spirits, and where it says every spirit that confesses or does not confess, the word is in the Greek is homologo, which means literally to same speak or to same think. To confess Christ conveys the thought of the faithful one, and this is from Vine's Expository Dictionary. It says, uh, to confess conveys the thought of the faithful one as being his loyal follower of being identified in thought or language. In other words, speaking the same, thinking the same as Jesus Christ. So the test is, does the person doing the speaking does he reflect Christ's character in his conduct and his conduct is a reflection of his thoughts and does he speak the same as Jesus Christ? Does he teach the same doctrine as Christ taught? That's the test. And as it goes on to say, in Vine's Expository Dictionary, one who truly confesses Christ, thinks and acts and speaks as Christ in the flesh, has come, is El Althaka, a present participle of Erkomai, and the perfect participle emphasizes an existing state. It's not one who confesses that Christ has come, it's one who in his confession, in his conduct, in his speech, shows that Christ is now coming in the flesh. That is, is existing at the present time in the flesh. That's what the Greek actually means. In other words, those who are true teachers are teaching and living their lives in such a way that shows that Christ is living in us now. And they teach that Christ must live in you. That he lives in the flesh of those who are his and that they imitate his example. As we read in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God, or the faith of the Son of God, as it could be translated, who loved me and gave himself for me. Those who teach that we are to live any other way than after Christ's example are, are false teachers. Those who teach any other doctrine than that taught by Jesus Christ are false teachers, false prophets. And Christ lives in us 
only if we are keeping His Word. That's how Christ lives in us. By us abiding in His Word, living by His Word. As Jesus said in John 14, verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. In other words, God will come and live in that person if we're keeping his word. He who does not love me does not keep my words. So if there's any minister not keeping the words of Christ, he does not love Christ and he is not a true minister of Christ. He is a false prophet. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So, how are you going to know who is a false teacher? How are you going to separate the truth from the false ministers? By examining their conduct and their speech by the standard of God's word. And if they are living profligate lives, if they are adulterers, if they are liars, if they are covetous, if they are lawless, you know that they are false, no matter what they claim. Now that doesn't mean that any human being, any minister living in the flesh is perfect necessarily. None is that I know of except Jesus Christ was perfect, but no other human being that I'm aware of has or is living absolutely perfectly according to God's word, but we should be, in a general sense, living by that standard. And ministers should be of good reputation, as Paul said. Not profligate. Not blatantly sinning. True ministers teach us to keep God's word faithfully and in, that, in doing that, we will be partaking of and imitating Jesus Christ. And those ministers who are faithful will be striving diligently to set a proper example for the flock. That is their responsibility. And if they're not doing that, they're not fulfilling their job. They're not true shepherds of Christ. And you should not be following them if they're not setting a proper example. Certainly you should not be following them in their bad example, but if, if they are just profligate and evil, you shouldn't be following them at all because they're false ministers, they're false prophets. Paul instructed Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Timothy was an elder, a minister, and he said to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 4, beginning with verse 12, he said, Let no one despise your youth. Timothy was an elder in the church, but he was ordained at a relatively young age. And so Paul said, Let no one despise your youth. He wasn't an older person, but he was an elder in the church. He was a minister. And he said, let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. He went on to tell Timothy, until I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Notice how he places an emphasis on what is being taught here. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which is which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Again, emphasizing not only his conduct, but also his teaching. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. That is the duty, the responsibility of an elder, a true minister of God. And members have an obligation for their part to diligently apply the knowledge of God's word in their own lives 
and to avoid false teachers and false doctrine. It is your responsibility as a member of the church to determine who is true and who is falsely claiming to represent God and to avoid false teachers. No one can do that for you. You have to do it. In 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, Peter said, There were false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you. Now he's writing to the church. And he said, Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies? Even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many, not a few, but many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. So Peter warned the church to beware of false prophets among the people. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 14, Peter wrote, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which there are some things hard to understand and there are some things in Paul's writings as well as the rest of the scriptures which are not impossible to understand but difficult and Peter goes on to say which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures you therefore beloved since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. Now, who would lead them away? Obviously, it's false teachers. It goes on to say, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. So, how are we to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Well, we do it through faithful, faithfully studying God's Word and obeying it, not just believing anyone or anything that we hear, or whatever is convenient, or whatever appeals to our lusts. Paul remarked to the church in Thessalonica of the faithfulness with which he himself had preached the gospel and taught them and of how he sought to encourage them, the congregation, the flock of God, to walk worthy of God who had called them. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3 said, For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. He was not lying to the people, but telling them the truth. And he said in verse 4, As we have been approved of God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness, for God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. And this is often the motive of people who claim to represent Christ, they're doing, often they're, they're making claims out of covetousness because they want to profit from claiming what belongs to others, or they want exaltation for vanity's sake, and th these are often motives for which people seek to be in the ministry or claim to be ministers of Christ, and yet are not willing to yield themselves to God's word and actually fulfill the responsibilities of a minister as far as God's word is concerned. 
But Paul said, we did not seek glory from men. We were, we were not doing this as a cloak for covetousness. When we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. Paul gave his life in service as a living sacrifice to serve Christ in the church. And finally, he gave his life altogether in martyrdom for the sake of the gospel. And he suffered greatly in doing the work of the ministry. Far more than most of us in this modern age have had to suffer. He went on to say in verse 9, For remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children that you should walk worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Notice the, that they were admonished to walk worthy of their calling. For this reason also we thank God without ceasing. Because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God which also effectively works in you who believe. Now it is not the word of men that leads to salvation. It is not the traditions of men or a church. It is the word of God, which effectively works in those who believe. And the members of God's church are to walk worthy of their calling. And the ministry's job is to help them to grow in unity toward the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, as it says in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 13. In unity with Christ and with God the Father as well as with one another. And the members, for their part, are to recognize, that is, they are to know, they are to perceive, they are to find out about, to the, get to know the strengths and weaknesses and pay attention to those who labor among them in the gospel and to pursue what is good for all. As Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those, that is, to get to know them and to pay attention to them, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. Notice why they're to be esteemed because of their work not just because they have an office. They have to be doing something to be worthy of esteem. They have to be doing the right thing. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for both yourselves and for all. We're told not to despise prophecies, that is, we're not to despise the inspired preaching of the Word of God. But on the other hand, we're not to just believe anything we're told either. Rather, we're instru instructed to prove all things. And the same principle we already read about in 1 John. In 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 20, it says, Do not despise prophecies, that is, inspired preaching of God's Word, but goes on to say in verse 21, test all things or prove all things and hold fast what is good. Don't just believe anything, but test it. Prove whether it's the truth or not. The only way you can do that is by testing it against the word of God. Now, ministers are human beings like anyone else and they have different strengths and weaknesses. And so 
it not, it's not necessarily wise to compare one minister against another in terms of ability. Some ministers may be great speakers and others may not be such great speakers. Paul was evidently fairly effective in speaking, but, but at the same time, he wrote to the people in Corinth that he was looked upon unfavorably when he was among them in person. Some derided him and ridiculed him. Now, maybe it was because of some disfiguring affliction. Maybe it was because his speech was not as flowery or as impressive as that of some other speakers, but some were evidently better speakers. Some ministers have a command of maybe several languages, perhaps Greek or Hebrew, as well as other languages. Some may be brilliant scholars, but none of these are necessarily qualifying factors for a minister. What is important is that a true shepherd of the flock of Jesus Christ must be faithful to God's word. He must know Christ. He must be able to teach effectively the truth. And while he may not be necessarily perfect, and no man is other than Jesus Christ, he ought to set an example of imitating Christ and be able to patiently teach others to imitate Christ. And for our part, we as members need to concentrate on applying the teaching of God's Word in our lives. But being a Christian is not limited to that. There's more to it than that. Because every Christian also has a part in helping to feed Christ's sheep. Christ's command to His leading disciples Matthew 10, he sent them out and he said, preach the gospel to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It wasn't just the church that they were to preach to, but they were to preach to the house of Israel. And most of the people of Israel at that time that they were sent out to preach to were not converted. Yet they were called the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And in a larger sense, you might say the entire world consists of the lost sheep of God because there are people that God has made who need a shepherd. And Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And part of the Messiah's mission was to preach the gospel. As we read in Isaiah 61 and verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings. Good tidings is really what the word gospel means, good news or good tidings, to the poor. That's what Jesus' mission was as the Messiah, was to preach the gospel to the poor. And Jesus Christ is the head of the body, his church. As we read in Colossians 1 and verse 18 of Christ, it says he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. And Jesus Christ lives in the flesh of the members of the church as we've read individually and collectively. And Jesus Christ gave the body a work to do. He gave the church a work to do. And he said that he would be with us doing the work through us to the end of this age. Some people have gone around saying the work is finished. That's a lie. Evidently, they've never read the scriptures. Or if they did, they don't understand them because the work is never done until God's plan is consummated and fulfilled. And then there will be other work to do beyond that. But the work of the gospel is by no means finished. And it will not be ever in this age. Because Jesus said that he would be doing the work through his church to the end of the age. As we read in Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
Amen, he said. And he didn't know what the word amen means. And we're told in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 that, beginning with verse 9, that the mission of the church is to proclaim the praises of God. Not just the ministers, but the church as a body. Now the ministers may be the spokesmen for the church, but it is a mission that is shared by all who are part of the body of Christ. As we read here in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. His own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Notice this is the mission of the church, or at least part of its mission, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. So we all share in the responsibility to take the gospel to the world, to proclaim the praises to the world of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, to as it were, feed the sheep of Israel and the world at large. Notice what Paul wrote concerning the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians and verse 1, or chapter 1, beginning with verse 5. He said, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you, the church, became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out. So that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned from God to idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So this was the example that the, Thess the church in Thessalonica had shown to the point that their example of faith and obedience to God's word had, had gone out far and wide. Their reputation for faithful obedience to God's word. And that example affected people far and wide. Now that doesn't mean that we should get on a soapbox and try to impose our religion on others. But it does mean that we should be actively seeking to support the preaching of the gospel and setting in a, good, a godly example in how we live our lives. And that could include telling people about your faith at times at the proper time and place. Sharing your faith with others. Doesn't mean you can't do that, but you don't want to unnecessarily offend people by trying to shove your religion down their throats. Most people don't appreciate that and it's not going to win them over anyway in most cases. But our example often speaks far louder than our words anyway. And many people, many people over the years have been brought into the church by the example of members of the church and how they live their lives. Jesus said to his flock in Luke 12, verse 35, he said, Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. Now let your waist be girded. In, in those days, they wore this loose clothing, robe-like garments, but such garments tend to get in the way when you're doing active physical work, like working out in the field, harvesting grain or, or other similar work. So they would tie, tie up their garments. They would gird the garment around their waist so it wasn't hanging loose and getting in the way. What these words imply is work, effort being put forth, lamps burning, 
A lamp, of course, gives forth light when it's burning. So what these words imply, they imply being an example, actively doing the work of being lights to the world. Going on in Luke 12 and verse 45 or 42, the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? Notice that this is being said to the church, and we are all stewards of God's word in a sense. And in the future, as to one degree or another in the present, our job will be to give food in due season to those who are in need of it. And those doing the feeding will be rulers over God's household. That is, they will be shepherds under Christ in the future. It says, Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. In other words, already doing these things. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. And we're told in Revelation 20 that those in the first resurrection will be kings and priests with Christ for a thousand years when he returns to establish his kingdom on the earth. That they will be given administrative responsibilities in that government. And they will be given responsibility for teaching others the truth of God's word. So if we're going to have those responsibilities, if we're going to be there in that kingdom, then we must be doing the work at his coming. The work that we as a church have been given to do. And we must be doing it as long as we have breath to do it. So let's never forget, as God's people, what it is we are to feed on and how we are being fed and that we ourselves have a responsibility to do our part in feeding others.